Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, why have gender gaps in education and employment closed rapidly while intimate partner violence and unequal divisions of labor remain so persistent? Here is my argument. Prejudice and privilege are self-perpetuating. High-status individuals maintain institutions that serve their interests, enabling them to consolidate economic wealth and political power. Through media domination, they cast themselves as heroes. Low-status individuals seldom get the same opportunity to challenge this narrative or demonstrate their equally valuable skills. So they are forever denigrated. Bias thus remains entrenched. How might that change? I suggest that bastions of inequality are quickly destroyed when they are seen as disadvantageous. Once the doors are opened and low-status individuals are permitted to make valuable contributions, they demonstrate equal competence and gain status. Building on this idea, I wish to explain why patriarchy is fundamentally different and why there can be rapid progress towards some dimensions of gender equality, but not others. Patriarchy is unlike all other inequalities because high and low status individuals jointly raise children. They do so endogamously within their own jati, ethnicity and religion. Others remain outside the family, hence there is far less potential for cross-cutting, mutual advantage and interpersonal contact. Under job-creating economic growth, husbands may welcome wives' earnings as this can benefit their children. Seeing women demonstrate value competencies, male family members iteratively come to reject gender stereotypes. But households are by no means egalitarian utopias. They are the global epicenters of tyrannical despotism, exploitation and violence. 25% of US women have been slapped by an intimate partner. 1.3 million US women report being raped by an intimate partner in the past year. Even among couples with similar earnings, the man does less housework and enjoys more leisure. Over in Germany, wives listen to their husbands, but not vice versa. 30% of married Indian women have been beaten by their husband. Why do family abuses persist with impunity? Elsewhere in the world, egalitarianism is maintained through reverse dominance coalitions. Ganging together in solidarity, they push for greater entitlements and protections. Families are unique bastions of inequality because the low-status individual is alone. Tied by her children, she is reluctant to leave, but lacks any allies to challenge the terms of her incorporation. The only option is, as the Bemba say, ukushipikisha, to endure. The net effect is that gender gaps in education and employment can close rapidly because these benefit children. In the absence of allies, however, unequal divisions of housework and intimate partner violence persist with impunity. Okay, so that's the overall argument. Let me break it down. So here's my first point. 
Female education and employment are increasingly seen as advantageous for child rearing. Male education rises universally with skill-based technological change. Educated men then seek educated wives and invest in their daughters' schooling. Since men marry and raise children within their own nationality, ethnicity or jati, wealth is rarely inherited across these groups. Gender gaps in Indian education have thus fallen more rapidly than those of caste or religion. Employment among women has soared in the US, Europe, Latin America and East Asia because it is increasingly seen as financially beneficial. Over in the 1970s, over the 1970s rather, young American men saw their relative earnings plummet. Unlike their fathers, they could not provide single-handedly as breadwinners. They were earning less than, far less than the top 1%. So men then opened doors, permitted women to undertake the socially valued role of household financial provision because it would benefit their children. Now, 70% of US adults say that children are better off if both parents work. Countrywide, women now earn 39% of total earnings. When I interviewed husbands of working wives in Mexico, Zambia and Cambodia, they likewise emphasised its material benefits. So too in medieval England, men usually welcomed their wives' labour force participation. Resistance actually came from other men who did not want to be undercut and thus formed exclusionary guilds to lock women out. So my argument here is that all families are sensitive to economic gains. But some cultures put greater premium on the afterlife, male honour or full-time motherhood. So in these cases, female employment will only rise when competing preferences are dwarfed by available earnings. Alternatively, there may be some cultural shift such that younger generations become far more individualistic, as I observed in Mexico. Now, so that's why female employment and education can rise rapidly. Here's my second argument. People gain status when they demonstrate valued competencies. Prejudices wane when people collaborate in joint projects, as famously argued by Golden Alport. Cecilia Ridgway likewise argues that status is contingent on perceived competence at advancing shared goals. This theory has been widely replicated. When Indian cricket teams are randomised, people become less likely to favour their own jatty. So too in South Africa, white students randomly assigned a black roommate are less likely to be racist. In the real world, however, interactions are incredibly segregated in terms of friendship networks, romantic partners, residential neighbourhoods, universities and workplaces. In India, most people live alongside their own jati. They seldom raise children together. Alport's mechanisms of equality are thus abstracted. What is the most common and sustained form of interpersonal contact between people of high and low status? Not just for quick transactions, but entire lifetimes. Families. Exposure, cooperation and empathy are especially strong within families. 
Strong, independent women are most closely observed by members of their own family. They act as role models, demonstrating the benefits of two earners. Sons of working mothers tend to be more egalitarian and have working wives. This has been observed in France, West Germany, Switzerland, Greece, Zambia and Mexico. Emotional ties of compassion are typically strongest within families. Fathers usually love their daughters, gain pride in their achievements and empathise with their struggles. So as low-status individuals make inroads into socially valued domains, their fathers are the first high-status individuals to relish this achievement. An elderly carpet trader in Udaipur shared that his daughter has a lucrative job at a multinational. He beamed with delight. In U.S. congressional hearings, politicians with daughters were far less likely to interrupt Janet Yellen. So with prolonged exposure to myriad women demonstrating valued competencies, they're increasingly regarded as equally intelligent and deserving of status. Inequalities wither. And that is precisely what's occurred in the USA. Very few Americans now say that a woman's place is in the home. Through these same processes, the entire world has become more gender equal. On the Zambian copper belt, a housewife used to be derided as ukwikala, just sitting. But when copper prices tumbled, factory pri- factories closed, and HIV-AIDS destroyed lives, women rushed to the labor market and eventually became valued providers. Women can do what men can do, they chorused all. Banamaya kutuba bomba in let me let me give a an excerpt from from my conversations with Matthew. He was once a miner, now an emaciated vegetable trader. He used to think that a woman is lower than the man, and that's a direct quote. Depending on the male breadwinner, women were, and I quote, relaxed, expectant, and laxed, preoccupying themselves with what he called small issues. The problem for him was their mindset. After Matthew lost his job, they sank into terrible poverty. His wife started selling sardines. Her mind broadened. She initiated ideas, and now they make decisions together. More broadly, Matthew observes women, and I quote, standing up to fight and solve problems as equals. I had to change, he said, for the betterment. It was changing me to be a better man said. So let me summarize. High status individuals are most open to reform when it advances their interests. Child rearing is a widespread priority. Families are thus the primary sites of inheritance, cooperation and love. With skill bias, technological change and job creating economic growth, men increasingly regard their wives' education and employment as advantageous. Prolonged exposure to low status individuals demonstrating their equal competence in valued domains erodes prejudice. This is most closely observed and cherished within families. Gender gaps in education, employment and prejudice thus close rapidly. Now let me come to my next item, my final argument, that reverse dominance coalitions are absolutely critical for egalitarianism. So thus far I have discussed cases in which high status individuals genuinely want to dismantle hierarchies due to their perceived interest or belief in inequality. In inequality. But what if they don't? So reverse dominance coalitions are powerful mechanisms 
of egalitarianism. Foragers mocked, ridiculed, bullied and berated self-aggrandizing upstarts who sought to accumulate resources, sarcastically calling them Big Chief. In the Kalahari one, influential Kung San explained, when a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man, and he thinks of the rest of us as his servants or inferiors. We can't accept this. We refuse one who boasts, for someday his pride will make him kill somebody. So we always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way, we cool his heart and make him gentle. So if the upstart does not relent, he may even be punished with ostracism or death. So these are reverse dominance coalitions, and they are universal drivers of liberty, democracy, and equality. Back in the 1970s, Korean workers forged class consciousness and fought for their rights. In, the Lat in Latin America, more recently, marginalized people have mobilized en masse and politicized inequalities. Social media can also enable reverse dominance coalitions. Collectively, low-status individuals can decry unfairness, belittle bullies, and reinforce each other's arguments. By publicly berating manals and mansplaining, they cultivate a sense of righteous resistance. Onlookers realize that disrespect is no longer tolerated. Now, Gender is unique here because a wife is typically alone, without any allies. Households have unique potential for tyrannical despotism because the low-status individual is deeply attached, but without any allies. Reverse dominance coalitions are thus impossible. Concerned for her children's survival and social reputation, she may be committed to stay, but it's very hard to challenge the terms of that incorporation. Across the world, sons grow up in homes where men are served food and treated with greater respect. They too anticipate female servitude. Denial is tantamount to disrespect, let me give a story from my research here in Turkey. In the outskirts of Istanbul, Yusuf asked his wife, Elif, for a cup of tea. She refused, so he beat her to a pulp. If a wife is economically dependent and fears ostracism upon divorce, her husband can subject her to brutal torture. In Karnataka, India, some men beat their wives to extract higher dowry payments knowing they cannot leave. In Puebla, Mexico, Jose told me that his grandfather brought home his girlfriend and asked his wife to cook. When she refused, he shot his wife in the thigh. She remained married, hobbling on crutches. In Lusaka, Zambia, Tandiwe detailed to me that her husband used to rape her. He also defecated in bed because he delighted in the degradation of, of her washing the sheets by hand. Then in Turkey, Fatima, a 55-year-old Arab cleaner from Midyat, was beaten by her husband's entire family. She described her life as being in a cemetery. Translated. Young girls are equally vulnerable. Chrissy, a 15-year-old, approached me when I was observing assertiveness training at her school in Kitwe, Zambia. Her uncle was a rapist. She had nowhere to go. In Turkey, uh, Dilnaz, who was 18, was seen with her boyfriend in the streets of Midyat. 
Her father and brother beat her for two hours. Much like her cousin, who was killed after eloping, she was punished for blackening their honour. Aldilnaz feared her, her own family, and she was desperate to escape. Over the past 13 years of research in Mexico, Morocco, Turkey, the Gambia, Zambia, India, Vietnam and Cambodia, I have met so many young women who are privately critical and bitterly resent sexist expectations. But resistance is difficult. Marriage and motherhood are expected, culturally celebrated, and thereafter a woman may be alone. Female solidarity is especially difficult in honor cultures where women are secluded and have very few friends. Even if a woman can move freely, they may not necessarily trust each other as allies. Instead, they may eye each other as potential threats to their own precarious marriages. Open dissent may even be chastised. As uh, my friend in Santa Maria La Ribera in Mexico told me, dirty laundry should not be aired in public. That again is inhibiting reverse dominance coalitions. Seldom seeing accountability for male violence, victims become caught in what I call a despondency trap. Although Indian women's rights exist on paper, they're rarely claimed and poorly enforced. Sexist and incapacitated, the criminal justice system rarely investigates allegations of abuse. While Indian women stand a far better chance if they are accompanied by brokers who lobby on their behalf, the overwhelming majority have no such allies. The reverse, the dearth, the dearth of the reverse dominance coalition within the household may also explain why women continue to shoulder the lion's share of housework. While a woman may wish for help, she is reluctant to rock the boat. Let me share an exception which I think proves the rule. Cassandra and her family were watching Wife Swap. The two teenage daughters cried out. They treat the wives like servants. Throughout the TV program, the daughters kept expressing outrage by belittling and mocking the patriarchs. Cassandra said nothing, neither did her husband. But over the following few weeks, her husband did more cooking and washing up than he had done in the course of their entire marriage. Cassandra was thrilled. She loved it and told him so. Her daughters had effectively formed a reverse dominance coalition. Okay, so let me bring this all to a close. Patriarchy is unlike all other, gender, all other inequalities because high and low status individuals jointly raise children. This generates unique potential for cooperation, interpersonal contact and compassion as well as abuse with impunity. Husbands may, under conditions of skill bias, technological change and job creating income growth, come to see wives' education and employment as advantageous for their children. As wives demonstrate value competencies, they gain status. Sons of working mothers tend to reject gender stereotypes. Households are also unique because the low status individual is attached, but alone unable to build a reverse dominance coalition. Families thus have unparalleled impunity for sustained abuse. The net effect of all this 
is that gender gaps in education and employment can close rapidly, while intimate partner violence and unequal divisions of labour remain entrenched. Oh, minor point. Uh, all those names of participants I mentioned, I changed them to preserve anonymity. So, there you have it. Let me know what you think. Uh, this is Rocking Our Prize, and I'm Dr. Alice Evans. Take care.